Welcome to Mind Crime the Show with me, Swin Dobson, and him, Tim Patton. Today we discuss do the Amish and the anarchists need Bill Crystal and Woodrow Wilson to protect them? Tim. Peter S. Peter Santello was interviewing a beachy Amish family, and they were asked, what are the downsides of being Amish? Um, one of the comments that a, that a person made, or one of the Amish elders was making, was that during times of drafts, um, they were viewed as scabs, where they didn't care about the country as much. Um, of course, it hasn't been a draft in a while. And I looked through the comments on the video, and I was seeing comments like this, like, a few, not a lot, but a few of them. Most of it was high praise comments, but they um, they want to enjoy the freedoms and luxuries offered by the U.S., but not participate in the costs. Um, you know, I, my question here is: Does the commenter and the people viewing them as scabs have a point? Um, this this episode also didn't just come out of the blue either. Um, this recently Scott Horton debated Bill Crystal at the Soho Forum. I think Scott Horton smashed Bill Crystal on a lot of the points there. Did a very great job. Uh, made uh, as Peter Quine said, made him look like a lightweight. Um, so being an amateur and I'm a pot economist, just like that failed podcaster Tom Woods, I think economics has a huge importance. Um, so the luxury part of the words I th think is underdefined. So, so that's what the commenter said: luxuries and freedoms offered by the U.S. Uh, first of all, I think one man's luxury is another's necessity. With medical equipment, that is clearly the case. You know, tell that to some one that a, uh, on a ventilator or insulin or or various other things that it's a luxury and you'll get accused of being ableist very quickly uh, for, for <laughs> um, you know, and one of the interesting things about like MRI machines is if you should look at how they try to make an MRI machine, include all sorts of rare earth metals and magnets and things like that. Um, um, so to make one is a very complicated good. This is something that Derek Jensen was saying on interview with Keith Preston and Todd Lewis, you know, that, that they require all sorts of material. So technology can and often has improved human life. Um, um, so maybe it hasn't. Maybe Roger Scruton is right that cars and trains destroyed human civilization of thick meaning, sort of stated that in his debate with Tyler Cowan. And there's always Javen's paradoxes of efficiency, like bigger, bigger refrigerator, more bigger, more efficient refrigerators means uh, you can have salmon flown in from Alaska or grown in a tank. Of course, but that's improves that improves human life. Um, um, so because in the past you couldn't have salmon if you weren't um, um, salmon is a great thing to eat if you weren't um, fairly wealthy or lived by a stream like you know, some uh, uh, indigenous person lived by a stream. Um, um, so yeah, technology has luxury technology using air quotes has improved. I would there's a clear relation. Luxury technology has improved human freedom. To quote my one of my favorite Christian. Uh, writers, you know, uh, it, it's it's that it's ex further extends the kingdom of man. You know, so technology further extends the reach of one man's of a man's kingdom. Um, so uh, you know, and again, as music again thing, music. So technology includes medicine, airplanes, uh, you know, and consumer electronics, all those types of things. Um, many would call them the luxury goods. Um, but if one enjoys music, you know, if you're going to have an opera or a symphony, that requires a lot of instruments. And so if you, even if you have, so unless you have a lot of like, unless you have good manufacturing techniques, you're not going to have a lot of operas and symphonies. Um, you know, even me, for example, thanks to technology, I can listen to classical music 
Supposedly, I think it's Beethoven only ever listened to some of his works like once or twice. And I've listened to that stuff, even an uncultured, somewhat philistine like myself. So I've listened to lots of that. Um, um, and, you know, the production method itself is a kind of technology to use Neil Ferguson's uh, killer app analogy. Um, so now I, I, I'm always willing to add in a bunch of Roger Scruton and primitivist addendums in here. You know, like uh, I'm, always, I'm always willing to add a bunch of those in. I mean, you, you know, there's two forms of production. You have North Korea, South Korea, roughly the same people, the same technology, and one produces more. Again, you add some Roger addend Scruton addendums in there and primitivist addendums. The North Koreans might have, don't have K-pop. The North Koreans don't have uh, 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 various, uh, have higher fertility rates from my understanding too. So maybe, maybe, maybe the North Koreans get things right. And I think the Amish, for example, on technological fronts um, are sort of resemble that. Now, again, not Amish, there's zillions of, not all Amish are that, there's zillions of groups. The group that was being interviewed was a sort of beachy Amish people, which are probably closer to Mennonites in their technological use. But, you know, like with most scubble groups, you know, there's 20 different, you know, as Walter Block says, there's for libertarians, 10 libertarians, 20 positions. Um, so Mennonite, Anabaptists probably have that same thing. But but I'm going to go into more why I think that is relevant here. Um, but again, back to the luxury question. Um, they work hard. So working hard. Um, is what, ma what matters to produce goods. They have that down pat. Um, they're not a bunch of shirkers from most understanding. They'll work 50, 60 hours a week. You know, their women will work the same. So, so it's working hard. They're not, you know, welfare queens to use sort of the, you know, or degenerate to use some of the right words. I don't think you can classify them by them. They, 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 they're intelligent. They have ingenuity and craftsmanship. They have all that credit. But um, the question is, if, if if not getting stolen is a sort of part of it, which I'm going to get to, that's where we get into more difficult areas here. But first, I want to go back to freedom before we continue on luxury. The question of freedom is the other question, luxury and freedom. First of all, what freedom? what is freedom? Am I free to stick this sharp object into your chest with it? The answer, of course, is not really. We did an episode on is murder wrong, whether the moral are arguments exist. We're not really here to debate that. Um, but in general, no. But this goes back to protection. Um, how do you stop people who want to kill you from wanting to kill you? Um, um, so, you know, that's, 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 un that's unclear. So the freedom question is, they could, Bill Crystal, Woodrow Wilson, and the Amish could uh, just differ on definitions of freedom. Um, um, the Amish, of course, don't participate, Amish the least, uh, some of the, the, the Peter Santella was interviewing Schwarzen groupers. They're probably the lowest of them. They're very primitivist. Um, they don't participate in Wilson's or Crystal Society that much. Um, um, they don't really use the roads that much. They use horse and buggies. So then they don't even have like the vehicle infrastructure there. Um, so the, so they're, they're behind Roger Scruton's um, railways line. They're behind that. Um, and the Amish ex example are an extreme version of this, but many people are sort of like that insofar as they don't work for the state department. They don't work for the public schools. They don't send their children to public schools. They don't, you know, serve in the police force. They don't serve in, you know, various other apparatus to the state or the mega corporations or certain mega corporations that are affiliated with the state. So many people do that, but they, I would say they are a principled or thick version to use the thick thin analogy. Um, the Amish are of course described as pacifist. And again, they are a principled version of it. Um, and let's go back to the crystal thing. 
without the military, in particular the, the U.S. military, there'd be no peace is probably the strongest argument in favor of Bill Crystal. This was the point he was making in his debate with Scott Horton. Hey, we've keep the peace. Russia, U.S., uh, Russia and Germany didn't go to war. U.S. and Germany didn't go to war since 1945. Isn't that great? There's been no nuclear wars. So that's the claim. There's been also no Hitlers. Now, I'm going to get to the Godwin's law before anyone cites that in a second. But um, the, uh, secu you know, the security, the strongest critique the Amish would be against the uh, Amish would be that they were free riders against this peace. Um, another defender of this would be a liberal minarchism. Rand, Ayn Rand, de facto wants a one more global minarchy dominated by Jefferson USA. Yaron Books, and if you've ever watched the Yaron Book Show, Yaron Books has a lot of neocon lines. He thinks, you know, he thinks the U.S. should stay in Afghanistan, from my understanding. He thinks the U.S. should, you know, he, he very much follows Bill Crystal's advice. So whether Rand does, Yaron Books in a lot of ways does. Um, Bill Crystal's best argument, again, would be one liberal one world minarchism. Security going back is probably related to, to the luxury part and the freedom part. Being secure in one's property allows one to, to plan time preference projects, save and produce. So if, again, if you're going to have everything stolen from you, you're not going to have the incentive to produce. Maybe the Amish will do it because they just want to produce things so they get, you know, right with God or something like that. So maybe they have an incentive to produce. Um, um, but with that, it's, it's less go, it's less clear. Um, um, but, you know, in order to produce complex goods, one needs to protect them from looters, rioters, and saboteurs, both far and abroad. Just get the luxuries of societies without the cost. And do all the other groups. Again, it's not just about the Amish. There's other groups that are less affiliated with this sort of state. Um, again, it's a they're an extreme version, but they're leading by example. So there's a reason I like them. A lot of a lot of thinkers will bring up and movements will bring up pacifism being, oh, you should be Christ-like, but they don't really mean it in full earnest or all situations. A lot of normie cons and normie Christians will talk about Bonhoeffer. But if one looks at Bonhoeffer, what was he what he was doing by the standard by standard thinking is domestic terrorism. Status church was doing the standard status Christian definition. Um so 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 like liberal Christians like Brian Zan, who say on Twitter he's not an anarchist. You know, he, he likes to go over Bonhoeffer, but Bonhoeffer was basically assassinating the leader of the Wehrmacht. I mean, if I went out and wanted to assassinate the leader of the current United States, I don't think a lot of liberal Christians would treat me like uh, some Christ follower. Um, um, but that's besides the point, okay? And again, going back to Godwin's law, Hitler, of course, Wilson, well, for Woodrow Wilson, it may have been just been the Kaiser and the whole German-Prussian people, but we'll just memory hold that for now, in general, or a threat to security for Bill Crystal. I mean, again, Bill Crystal in the debate. I mean, security policy, Policy since like 19. I mean, they find these figures all over the world. They'll find them, you know, uh, Stalin has to go, Assad has to go, Putin has to go, Xi Ping has, you know, they all, they find Hitler's everywhere. And again, in the United States too, um, uh, within the United States too. So, and then World War II hangs over this. And again, if you push them hard enough, they'll always bring that up. I want to differentiate between two types of pacifists. So the thin one is someone who does it for tactical reasons. Libertarians following the NAP are a kind of tactical pacifist too. If someone faces an libertarians will only uh, libertarians will only use aggression for defense, not offense. Now there's a gray area: what counts as offense, what counts as defense, but they only use it for defense. If someone faces an enemy, and just says, um, if someone faces uh, 
someone faces an endless, so they lay down their weapons, I wouldn't call that principled fast pacifism. I mean, for example, if the cops pull me over and I've been pulled over, I was speed, speeding, air quotes, the U.S. has very weird speed laws for environmental reasons. Um, you know, I, you, you support a rational idea. I mean, maybe you could ask, you know, how much they stole in, in um, citizen national forfeiture or go full Fourth Amendment, but, you know, I think Third Amendment, but that's besides the point. Um, so, so again, if someone doesn't like the Tsarist wars and doesn't join the Tsar's army or doesn't like Woodrow Wilson's wars and doesn't join, you know, the American Expeditionary Force in World War One, but then goes and sabotages, that's not really pacifism. That's just tactical pacifism. You don't like the war. That's not disavowed violence. A lot of civil rights stuff is like this. You know, what you're really doing is hyper obedience to the state. You know, you, you know, this is the point that's brought up by an Army War College lecture that like the civil rights movement, for example, a lot of the, um, it's called pacifists, but the, the power of the North was always behind a lot of it. Um, you know, they wanted to crush Southern states independence. This is post-1960 here. They want to crush. Now, again, the normies will all say, well, that's a good reason to crush it. Um, you know, we've crushed them abroad. Now we have to crush them internally. But it's more like hyper-obedience to the state. The thick ones like the Amish are the hard example. And this goes back to my free riding claim. Um, the Amish are the pacifist par excellence. They supposedly sing hymns if they get robbed. Um, 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 which you know, might be a sort of deterrence method for them. Um, um, so now again, and they follow off the early church, you know, so Christ, James, and various others, and Andrews, they all took the punishment, you know, they were all crucified or killed. They didn't, they didn't, um, they didn't join the state, of course. I'm not here to debate whether that's the true Christian line here. I'm sort of using them as an example here. Um, but, but so I'm going to start with the easy questions with Amish be free to practice their religion as they feed fit without Bill Crystal and Woodrow Wilson protecting them. Um, wouldn't the Nazis or communists just put them in camps? Um, um, if it wasn't for the freedom loving Crystal, Churchill, and FDR. Even though, of course, FDR put some ethnic groups in camps and forced them to do work for the state in their wars, you know, wouldn't they just be rolled over? Swithin? <clears throat> well, the first point to make is that the Amish, well, a lot of them still live in the United States. Um, is there any likelihood that the uh, Russians or the Nazis would have actually physically invaded and attacked them? The answer is no. That is clearly was never realistic. Uh, anybody who would invade the United States, the most likely candidates would be Mexico and Canada, uh, neither of which are probably going to invade anytime soon. Um, so just on the practical basis, just where the, they are, they wouldn't. And I imagine, suppose, though, you had the, um, the Amish in, oh, in Europe somewhere. Could they have been invaded by the Russians and the, um, and the uh, Nazis? Well, possibly. Um, but the first question is, though, why would anybody want to invade the Amish anyway? Why would you bother? Um, Think about the reasons you'd normally invade somebody. You've got uh, resources you have. Uh, maybe that eye to one of your enemies. Um, those are sort of like the, the normal reasons to invade. Um, and the Amish, well, you know, do they really have that many resources? They're not really technologically advanced. Um, I mean, 
why bother? Now, I suppose you could say, oh, well, we need troops for our army and we'll, ex we'll uh, enlist the Amish men to do that. But that's a possibility, I suppose. Um, and also, oh, they work hard so they'd be good tax cattle. Again, another possibility. So, yeah, the, yes, I mean, it's possible uh, that they would be invaded. But the question is, is well, what would be the likelihood of um, this taking place? Um, it would seem that since, say, the Second World War, the countries which have sort of caused problems for the Americans in general, militarily speaking, have been ones that they have actively engaged themselves to begin with. Uh, and or you could argue blowback from, um, assuming the standard 9-11 story is true, from various military um, escapades overseas. Now, the Amish wouldn't have done that. So would the Amish then have been attacked by those? Well, no, probably not. The question is, well, why have you got other people? Well, again, that's possible. That is uh, a, a, a possible uh, outcome. But I think it somewhat, um, I, I don't know who bother to invade the Amish. I, I, I don't really see that being a huge, uh, um, huge hugely probable action. That said, of course, the very fact that they will refuse to defend themselves will mean that they uh, do reduce the costs of invading them. I think that is true. And to the extent to which that they might be in an area of lots of minerals that people might want to, to use, the very fact that they don't um, defend themselves or won't does mean that, yes, you could argue they are free riders to some extent. Although I would, the main point here, though, is the U.S. military isn't really a particularly defensive force. It's, an, it's like an imperial force, which doesn't really do very much defending of the U.S., uh, so you, whether they do defend the USS, USS, it's not Star, Star Trek, um, it, it's, it's whether or not the escapades abroad actually prevent any um, military action in the US, which I think is doubtful for the reasons that I outlined so far. That's fair. Yeah, they don't have um, much to defend. Um, I'm going to play somewhat devil's advocate here, but I think by playing devil's advocate here, I'm going to expose the possible internal enemy, which actually might be even a bigger threat. Maybe they don't have military reasons, but there's also ideological reasons to um, to invade or someone. You know, you want to invade someone to convince them of your own religion. I mean, this this was quite clear in the um, you know post 1918 period with respect to communism here. Um, you know, the Lenins, Stalin's, Trotsky's, um, and various others. They wanted to you know expand south into the Caucasus and west into uh, what was then was formerly part of Russian Empire itself. But, uh, you know, this is an interesting piece of history here. Uh, the, uh, I think it's actually where um, the current UFC boxers from, but I could be wrong about that. Um, I was reading this in a book recently, but they expanded these sort of Islamic parts. You know, Stalin sent one of his cronies down there and they just basically looted a center for Islamic learning down there because uh, they wanted to sort of turn them into a, uh, you know, they wanted to turn them into communists here of some variety. There was some dis debate amongst the communist inner members. Aren't we going to look like the oppressor class here? Because here we're in the local areas, we were going at the czars. The czars were unpopular since World War I. Um, but now down here, we're going to look more like invader class. Um, so there might be ideological reasons 
to uh, go and, um, you know, you want to go and spread your message to them. Um, how would they defend themselves against them? You know, wouldn't if Lenin's group lived right next to, wouldn't they have invaded? Now, of course they don't, but, you know, again, if you take the neocon ideas seriously about defense, now whether they, whether we should or not, whether that's fair, you know, if, if we don't fight them over there, they'll be, you know, in, in Pennsylvania or Ohio, that's where a lot of them live within a decade. What, what do you make of that? There are ideological reasons. Swithin, what do you make of that claim? Yeah, of course, the ideological reasons are a reason to invade. And again, that's possible. Um, so if there was a group which was um, ideologically concerned that the um, Amish were to convert, as it were, then yeah, of course, they, 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 they could invade them. I think that's entirely possible. Um, but, um, and in that case, and I said, as I mentioned before, I, I do think the Amish, you know, could be taken. Uh, they might try to have non-compliance with the authorities or whatever, but I think with sufficient numbers and sufficient force on a relatively small population group, which they typically are, uh, notwithstanding their large birth rates, um, I think, you know, yes, you could you could um, invade them, yeah, because uh, because they're, they're not going to put a fight. Um, so I, I, I do think that's fair, and I do think you can make the case that to some extent the Amish do free ride on sort of like um, the US Defense uh, Department. Um, it's just that given where they currently are, the probability of anyone really ideologically invading them is quite small. As I said, if they're in the Middle East, it'd be another question but they aren't and as Keith Preston points out um the U.S. Oh, this is more of a military thing but the, the the U.S. continent is the North American continent is probably one of the easiest ones to defend if you're like the USA I mean you don't really have particularly aggressive neighbors so it's just coastal defenses on either side so it's relatively straightforward um but I would say that that the fact that the Amish will refuse to fight does mean that the costs of invading them are lower than they otherwise would be, which would then increase the probability that they would be invaded. Maybe they might need them to protect them. Maybe they might need to protect them from foreign aggression. But speaking of ideological means, and this is where things are going to get more more interesting here to, to the libertarian favor here. Is it the case that Bill Crystal or Woodrow Wilson I'm going to, might be the most likeliest to put them in camps? or at least make life more difficult for them at minimum. I mean, of course they had to do work assignments as a replacement for um, compulsory service um, um, during World War II from my understanding. And with the growth of, you know, totalitarian humanism, we could see them, you know, I'm, I'm not really sure how they would answer the cake baking question here. Uh, they're, they're, they homeschool, they private school, of course. So they have lots of areas outside of it. Um, but wouldn't you say that, you know, Bill Christopher or Woodrow Wilson might be the most likeliest, you know, ceteris paribus? You know, again, if you get into uh, other areas, you know, there's there are certain people that would clearly view them as uh, enemies. I, mean, I, I imagine the child service would, would be a bigger threat to them at this point than, you know, Marxist-Leninism. Swithin? It certainly does seem to be the case that the current, or oh, in the last hundred years, the most aggressive, uh, the individuals with the most aggressive foreign policy do tend to be the one of the, more I the most ideological. Uh, so making the world safe for democracy, etc., bringing 
women's rights to Afghanistan, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, these are not people, at least who officially sort of um, cheer on the wars. Now, the people behind the, uh, the wars could well be more traditional, um, have more traditional reasons for uh, actions, such as you know, mineral rights, uh, economic reasons in general, or just sort of like geopolitical uh, posturing. Um, but yeah, Woodrow Wilson, etc., Bill Crystal, were all very much part of what well, we have. Well, I suppose you could call it liberalism of a sort, of an oft abused word. And they're quite aggressive in wanting to um, to export it. Uh, and nothing makes them more mad than the fact that their, as it were, their export isn't um, consumed enough at home. So yes, it's entirely possible that those types of people would. Um, um, would be some of the first to sort of internally oppress uh, the Amish. I mean, this is always a question when it comes to like foreign defence. It's like, okay, maybe let's just take for granted that the state or an imperial state in the case of the US um, is better at defending an area than the, the, the Amish or the anarchist community would be. Okay, fair. Let's, let's assume that's true. But then you've got to weigh it up as, well, what's the probability um, and, um, and negativity, as it were, of internal or foreign aggression? It's like, well, okay, it might get a bit more foreign aggression, possibly, but is that better or worse than having domestic oppression? I mean, it isn't obvious immediately what's preferable. Uh, obviously, it's going to depend on a case-by-case basis. Um, but... Uh, yeah, I, although I suppose this goes back to your point about freedom, you know, what is freedom for Bill Crystal? What is freedom for Woodrow Wilson? Um, again, it's kind of quite nebulous to a large degree. I suppose Bill Crystal would be some form of corporate capitalism uh, with, um, with, with um, be rights. Woke, probably yeah. woke. Well, cultural capitalism would be Bill Crystal. Well, yeah, I was going to, go to say LGBT rights, rights for women, minorities, etc. That, that's what freedom is to him. And obviously, if you uh, don't accept that freedom, then you'll be forced to be free. Um, Interestingly, of which the you know the more conservative Amish groups have none of them. So again, I would say they they're definitely um, would find themselves eventually, in theory, at the business end of the. Um, you know, the corporate cap, the, you know, whatever, the, you know, whatever you want to call it state there. So that, that's, that's, that's how I, I would, I would agree with that there too. Um, Hans Hoppe, Hans Hoppe um, at the his recent uh, PFS lecture made an interesting point. This relates to the, you know, national defense talk here. He talked about the social contract theory and, you know, why NAP things here. And he said, one of the things about social contracts is that theorists themselves, when they go out, and say that it exists, they don't actually ask for any acceptance of this, you know. So, like, you know, no one actually agreed to these some a lot of these state constitutions. You know, there's no real agreement per se for these. They didn't ask everyone if they wanted these, they should just go out. So a lot of the social contract theories would just assume that everyone agrees this social contract here degree. And groups like the conservative Amish would clearly not agree to many of these social contracts, especially formulated by people like Woodrow Wilson. Or Bill Crystal, um, um, so so in that regard, you know this is sort of like Hans Hoppe. You know, you know, it, it's a it's a it's a protect 
protection service that he taxes you and asks you for military service while claiming to protect you from other uh, from getting punched in the face and theft. I can debate whether taxation is just user fees, um, um, but you know, an organization that forces you, you know, servitude for its military, he's a kind of a strange organization there. But that again, you know, foreign versus domestic threats here. So I'm gonna move on from that topic here, but I thought it'd be an interesting aside here with Hoppe's recent PFS lecture here um, on social contracts there. Um, we'll move on here. As I say at the beginning, there's two things stated, and I think they're related, luxury and freedom. Again, you could get fast and loose with the word luxury, what counts as a luxury, what doesn't count as a luxury. But could the Amish, and now again, there's many groups of them, and more some of the groups higher up use more technology here. They don't just use horse and buggies, they use you know trains, they use planes, they use modern medicine. Um, and um, they use it quite well, of course. I mean, they're very good. They're very hard workers, they're very ingenuity, they have a lot of intelligence, they have a lot of ingenuity. Um, you know, they're not what you know people call degenerate by no means, they have high birth rates. They're definitely not, they definitely have escaped the Malthusian trap par excellence here. Um, they're not free riders in the strict economic sense if working hard is the sort of bastion of working hard. You know, I was on with Keith Preston once, and one of my critiques was that. You know, a lot of people, I think uh, Murray Rothfeld would call this modal libertarians. A lot of people want to be socialists because they just don't like working and shirking and living off others. Um, I don't think that's true of any of the Amish groups, the Mennonite groups, and those four. So those, so it's free riding is that economic free riding. They don't, they don't even take welfare here in the United States, don't take social security here in the United States. They have an exception to it. So in that regard, they're not freeing. But as far as economic liberty, to what extent do you think their wealth is related to, um, you know, the uh, the ability for, um, you know, Bill Crystal and Woodrow Wilson's Navy to patrol around? And this is sometimes a comment that's often thrown at by the sort of left libertarians. We'll throw at the right libertarians sometimes, um, um, and some other groups. The far left, of course, will throw this at at, at the capitalists to say that you know, capitalist wealth comes through imperialism to some degree. Now, again, we can sort of get into the history of that if we want to, uh, but sticking to the sort of certain groups of them, um, what do you say do their wealth come from, you know, the existence of the, uh, you know, the, 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 the sort of large organizations, shall we say, or do you think, or do you think they're actually a free rider on them? Um, you know, I, my, my guess is I don't have the exact numbers up here, but I would imagine they're net taxpayers. Um, they do pay high taxes. Interestingly, many school districts in the United States, um, I would homeschoolers are actually a boon for them because some of them aren't tied to the students. Everyone pays property taxes, um, um, regardless if you homeschool or not, you don't get any tax credit. So my guess is they're huge taxpayers in, in that regard. So you can actually argue that they're in a certain sense free riders off them, uh, the more, most of the most productive peoples. But so I think, what do you think is their wealth is related to the, uh, you know, the U.S. global trade organization? And again, you could press this before 1940 or so, it would be for the British Navy here too, the, the empire that existed before, of course. So with him? That's a very difficult question to answer. Um, what you're really having to answer here is whether or not the um, 
American sort of military uh, empire generates more economic benefits than it costs to maintain it. Um, that's ultimately what the question is. Now, there are obvious economic benefits, uh, as you alluded to, uh, to the American empire, primarily keeping trade lanes open and reducing the cost of international trade. Uh, I think this is what Peter, Peter Zeeland was uh, complaining about the, um, the decline in American hegemony in, in the seas because this was going to increase the costs of sort of international trade. So I think that is true to some extent. Uh, the question is whether overall this is uh, going to improve uh, things. My, I, mm -hmm. I would say that, oh, okay, so, so there's a second point as well. And the second is whether or not the resources that uh, businesses around the world can use and extract and sell to the West are they able to access those more cheaply than they otherwise would be able to in the absence of uh, the American military uh, and sort of their influence on um, on sort of um, like control, maybe indirectly on the um, on the governments of the areas of like uh, eminent domain, compulsory purchase, that kind of thing, to move people off the land so that you can sort of exploit it, etc. Um, so that's kind of a lot of relevant questions. I would though say that my the big question I think with me would be how cheap or expensive would it be to if um, if you were if they sort of ran um, sort of libertarian property right type things in these sort of third world countries and whether it would be more expensive if they did or less expensive. I do though think with the American military per se sort of protecting the seas, I think on net that's probably going to be to the detriment of the uh, wealth, uh, even though that might mean less long supply chains and things being produced more locally to reduce the cost of transportation. But the sheer cost of the American military is uh, astounding. And it seems pretty obvious to me that if you were just focused on defending shipping lanes, that could be done at a significantly uh, lower cost. Um, so, for instance, uh, this is an old example. This one Matteo alerted me to. In the um, first half of the 16th century, um, there was increased militarization for various reasons, kicking out the Muslims. Uh, from Spain, the radicalization of the North Africans who raided and the expansion of the Ottoman Empire. And um, so there was, there was increased military tension in the Western Mediterranean. Uh, and Spain, when they wanted to hire um, uh, some ships to defend themselves, actually went to some Genoese families. Uh, and these Genoese families had these ships primarily to defend their own trading routes, uh, the Dorian Grimaldi. Uh, there were money lenders and uh, grain merchants, and um, they had their own ships primarily to protect them, to protect their um, their economic interests. So it seems, at least back then, you could claim it's different now, that at least at some point historically it was possible to privately defend uh, sort of shipping routes. 
And I think if you just focus on doing that, that's going to be significantly cheaper than bombing uh, Afghanistan, for instance. Speaking of shipping routes, um, I, I was following Alex Epstein's uh, recent uh, following of the U.S. budget monstrosity, this sort of giant bill that's trying to work its way through. One of the statements he made in it is that they're trying to make natural gas drilling, I might get the technical details, somewhat illegal. It's like, for example, Texas, Ohio, Pennsylvania, not sure about Ohio, Texas and Pennsylvania, for instance, underneath them. But what the bill would de facto do is make it illegal or very high price to do it. Um, um, so, you know, to go back to the sort of domestic versus international threat, um, the real threat of, you know, having a flourishing society, if you want to have fossil fuels, again, some of the groups, of course, I'm describing don't have fossil fuels. They're somewhat primitivist ID and they're somewhat reactionary because of their premises, possibly. Um, but it sort of the threat if you're able to produce much of industrial society fairly locally now maybe there's obscure metals that can't be found in in your in your society and that you need but then you might be able there's a big difference between having everything come in and having just one obscure metal come in that's a big difference so you know many societies could be energy independent france for example has big nuclear um facilities macron was talking about that go He's recently announced that France will have built more nuclear power plants. Again, that's another area which in which it's illegal to actually build them, or to build nuclear power plants, or it's de facto illegal due to the domestic bureaucracy making it expensive. Now, it could be, you know, again, some people would say, well, that's a good thing because it's dangerous. But it's also dangerous to have expensive energy, too. That's another dangerous point. What do you make about that point about domestic versus foreign aggression? Isn't, isn't, the, isn't, the, isn't to a certain extent the fear domestic aggression, so to speak, from the sort of interventionist state. So then what do you make about that point? Would that shorten supply lines and then there's no need for navies? So then? As, I, as I mentioned, yes, I, I do think supply lines would be cheaper, uh, would, would, would be shorter. Uh, for instance, um, the transportation, transportation on sea is relatively cheap. I will grant that just physically, even excluding uh, physical protection. But transportation over land, wow, that's not cheap at all. Uh, the average for a single lane highway in England, it costs about ten million pounds per mile uh, for just one single mile of one lane. So if you did two lanes, one going one way, one going the other, that'd be twenty million per mile. Uh, rail is even higher. Uh, the HS2, the high speed rail that's going to be built in England, that's going to come out at about three hundred million pounds per mile. Um, transportation is not cheap. Now, of course, you could get economies of scale and loads of other stuff. You can maybe make a case for it, but, you know, prima facie, it's a lot more expensive than you thought it would be. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I would expect, for, to a large extent, the extent that I would expect that there'd be much bigger um, premium put on more local production where it can be produced locally, just because it's going to be cheaper to, to, um, to transport and, of course, you know, to protect as well apart from those uh, examples you gave. So I would agree entirely with you that the, the bigger question really is, is domestic oppression rather than um, rather than external. Uh, and I think uh, the extent to which a government wants to focus on external threats is uh, probably just to uh, divide, divert you away from domestic, um, domestic threats. Uh, 
You make an interesting point about energy, uh, you know, not having uh, enough energy can be dangerous. I mean, that's obviously true. I mean, um, you know, you don't really want your hospital to run out of electricity. I mean, that wouldn't be very good. Uh, that's clearly dangerous in certain respects. So there's always danger. The question is which danger, um, how bad is the danger and can we minimize it and other sort of relevant factors. But yeah, I think everybody who goes on, oh no, what about the foreign invasions and foreign threats really needs to focus on what the, the extent to which you have domestic threats. Uh, and the domestic threats are clearly a lot higher at present and at least. And speaking of energy, here's a very vanilla thing, heating. You know, if you're in a northern climate, you know, northern Michigan, Minnesota, there's fairly big Amish populations there from my understanding, you're going to have winters in the 20s and 10, this is Fahrenheit, 30 Celsius, but um, you're going to have those winters. You, you can't, you can't survive outside in those, those, those conditions. So you need cheap energy. And with gasoline here in the United States per gallon, $100 power oil, you know, that energy is going to be set. So domestic versus foreign, if you shorten the supply chains, you might not need the navies here. Again, there might be obscure elements that can't be fine. But then I think the Kevin Carcian critique is somewhat correct. Things would just be different. It would just look different to some extent. I think it would still be somewhat very advanced, possibly, if they want to be advanced, of course. Um, if they choose to be advanced, I think it could be a very advanced. Um, um, and as far as the transportation, your point was also very well uh, is very true. There's a book called Randall Tool. He's he's a Cato guy, but um, he wrote a book called Rome. The far left would actually agree with some of his sub sub points. I mean, for example, both the transcontinental and the trans Russia, whatever you want, the Trans Siberian Railroad, initially were built not for um, economic reasons. They were built for military reasons, arguably. Uh, uh, so so they were built to you know unify the continent of the United States here. Um, um, now, again, the Bill Crystal would say, well, that's why we don't have uh, rival powers in the United States here. Um, so maybe they have a point there. But, you know, this goes back to the sort of one world government point here. You know, so if you need to have unity in the United States and you have to have unity overall. So Bill Crystal's real position should be liberal one world minarchism, not U.S. Um, 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 dominance there. Um, and Bill Crystal probably knows that's probably unattainable or outright imperialist. So he doesn't publicly acknowledge that. But as David Friedman would point out, if you really think you need a territory monopoly, the territory monopoly should be on the globe, not just locally. But a lot of the railroads in the United States and Russia, for example, just two societies I'm somewhat familiar with, um, are built for military reasons, not economic reasons. Actually, a lot of railroads put out water transportation. This is one of the sort of interesting subtexts. Take states like Dakotas at Montana. I was there visiting recently. Up until the arrival of the railroad, they have thriving riverboat industries. Rivers are more or less de facto free. Now, of course, there are dams, but you can build a dam and a lock next to it and like just charge a toll. It's a fairly reasonable thing. Um, and actually, as Randall too points out in Romance of the Rails, free air travel, air, airplanes, and these 787 carbon fiber Dreamliners are amazingly efficient. Air travel is actually extremely cheap. Air travel put out the rail industry in the United States. Which actually, interesting, eventually, as Peter Hitchens pointed out, was somewhat private at some point and somewhat profitable at some point. And they actually had to subsidize not only the military. Um, so they built all these cities around the rail, um, um, which then caused the roads to have to be replaced them. So actually, the railroads were put out industry by the U.S. highways. The U.S. history is sort of hilarious in that part. But river travel is fairly cheap. 
Um, um, air travel currently for people, not for bulk weight, it's very expensive to haul, but for people, it's very cheap to fly around. Um, so actually flying cars actually might actually be somewhat cheap there. But again, this is more of libertarian futurism um, at this point. But you know, to go back to the Kevin Carson point, I think it would look different. Um, so maybe we'd have flying cars instead of roads. All you, as long as you don't get, you know, you can, you, you, you're, you're free to, you know, travel from place to place as a person, or just carry those rare earth minerals you need for your factory. Um, so that, that's how I would imagine. So within, do you have any comments about that? Um, you know, this is sort of a Kevin Carson point. Yeah, you like certain aspects of that. What would you make of that? Oh, I would agree. It looked very different. Um, I, 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 I do think flying cars are a distinct possibility. Um, I mean, they just make some, you don't need to maintain the skies. The sky is free. Uh, infrastructure costs are just astonishingly expensive um, to do anything. Um, and I, I think a lot of more technology would go into flying because uh, flying is basically pretty cheap. Um comparatively and i think you probably get more of it and you would let, get less car travel uh, on the road that is i mean what brought this home to me was um not all countries in the world which are actually quite developed actually have proper roads everywhere i watched an old top gear episode uh well what wasn't old when i watched it they went to the south island in new zealand and in new zealand they mostly have uh gravel roads in the south island because there's no point having proper um um tarmac roads because it's just too expensive there's no point and this is a state decision so they have gravel ones and people just have four by fours i mean that's just seemed sensible that that's going to be the, the best use of resources i mean it, it just seems to be the case that there are that the most rational use of resources could look very 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 different than uh what it currently looks like um and of course, the, the technology would would uh, would work accordingly. So, as you mentioned, I, I expect significantly more flying. You could get some road routes on that are very uh, important between major cities, but probably not that much. Obviously, you probably need some form of internal road subscription, unless, of course, you just all go flying cars, which of course would be uh, different. Although, then the question is, you know, do you have mass transport of various descriptions? So, you 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 could you could discuss. Um, those types of things. But yeah, I, I, I do think the way things would be set up and organized would be radically different. Uh, and then actually, this is also interesting. It, it impacts, for instance, how the internet works. I mean, this is a point Kevin Carson would like. Uh, does Amazon exist without the government road system? Uh, I'm unsure whether that's, that's likely. I mean, the additional cost it would take them to deliver that stuff would be a lot higher. I mean, would it make more sense just to produce it more locally? Possibly. Um, so this sort of like central distribution model that you have, because you have, quote unquote, the economies of scale. You know, you, know, you have the economies of scale because you have the uh, government road system, which you should point out is mainly, well, you, the Siberian one you said, but I remember, remember the interstate American road system was built by Eisenhower, primarily to mobilize the military easily and quickly around the uh the usa so yeah the, this this the scenario would look very 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 different this is where uh people like chomsky and the far left want it not only both ways 
it's, it's even worse that um, they'll ask them, you know, people will say, oh, in a libertarian society, who would build the roads? Um, but then they'll say, well, many roads were built for military reasons. Um, they aren't actually economic. Um, they have externalities. Uh, and now, again, it's true that the Yaron Brooks types will defend certain aspects of this and the Cato types to some extent, too. Um, but then if you go, if you go, you go paleo live enough, they don't defend that. Um, so what you're really attacking is those. Now, to the extent that they're related is, is, is relevant. Um, so maybe they actually do defend them. But, you know, the roads that are built, they might not be built. And that's not a problem. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting that, that, you know, Jared Diamond had a book, Guns, Germs, and Steels. And one of the things he had the geography view of history. And now, now again, Jared Diamond's not the ex expositor of this. I don't really think he is. But it could be that geography is somewhat relevant. Like it's, it's hard to have liberty or the freedom that the Amish want in certain areas. So like you, you might want to live by the coast with a mountain range that would make you, your society easy to defend. And you have access to water. You can have a small private Navy, access to water and a runway. Um, um, you know, that actually might be defendable. I mean, look at Britain, look at the United States. The French call the United States a global island, you know, Fortress North America to somewhat, um, um, because it in some ways is an island. Um, so it could be that, you know, and actually this Italian city-states, the Greek city-states that we, you know, associate with some libertarian ideas, Genoa, Venice, those type of places, they were easy to defend spots to some extent with water access. They were not, they were not in the middle of Russia in Siberia. And actually those cities within Siberia were built from the Trans-Siberian Railroad as military industrial, as military points. Now, again, you could say, well, they need the mineral ores from them. But then you have to ask why they need the mineral ores. So maybe that couldn't be done. But then industrial society might not be possible without it. And as we discussed earlier, it could be that maybe industrialism is not impossible. But then, 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 then you have to make a choice here. And we did a, we did a question with Keith Preston of is anarchism reactionary or um, progressive to the extent that economics is is drives a lot of stuff. It could be it could be that certain goods might not be available unless you're going to willing to build an army to go get them in a mine in some obscure location. That could be the case. Um, but then, then you have to ask Noam Chomsky, do you really want that good at that cost? Is it really worth it? And you might just say no. But then again, maybe an MRI machine doesn't get built because there's a rare earth mineral that just can't be found. But that, that's just a sort of trade-off there. Um, that's just sort of trade-off there. So who would build the roads? They might, some roads pro probably won't be built and that's actually a good thing. So then what do you make about that comment here about like maybe a libertarian side would have to be by waters. Historically, seems like the places that like in the past, if, I, if someone asked me where I wanted to live in the past, you know, a good heuristic might be, is it by water? You know, Athens, Genoa, you know, you know, London's not quite by water, but it's close. Most of the cities in South and Southern England, from my understanding, are all by water, port cities. Swithin, what do you make of that? It's certainly true that certain areas are easier to defend than others. Um, mountain ranges, um, generally being in islands. Also, given the ease of trade, historically, um, well, up until basically the 18th century, the easiest way, at least in Western Europe, to uh, get things around was via rivers and the seas, which to, to some extent explains so the, the, um, the economic success of the Mediterranean. Um, so 
you know, historically you'd want to be around there. And of course, coastal things are probably generally easy to defend. Uh, if you've got large plains, then you can be invaded from various different areas. I mean, so for instance, if you ever play the board game diplomacy, you never want to be Germany. Because Germany is astonishingly difficult to defend. You get attacked by the British from one side, you get attacked by the Russians from the other side, you get attacked by the Italians in the south. Though I'm not sure if they're on separate sides in diplomacy, they might be, I can't remember. But it's quite difficult to defend. Um, that said, in principle, uh, would it be possible to defend places with more challenging terrain to defend? I think that's possible with modern technology, other than that presupposes that the modern technology would exist. Um, got sufficient sort of uh, artillery and sort of like uh, anti-aircraft uh, missiles and things, you know, I think you could give it a good shot. Although the people groups who would tend to uh, predominate in those areas are probably once historically uh, ruled over by um, authoritarian regimes and so probably less likely to turn to libertarian societies um, than those uh, of, one, of, of an area with more disparate population density and uh, more challenging terrain in which, you know, uh, all sort of powerful leader was actually a lot more, it was actually a lot more difficult for such of an individual to uh, exert, exert his power. Um, to the point about Chomsky and about the MRI machine or whatever. Yeah, of course, they could well, you can't deny outright that there's going to be a possibility that you can't get hold of resources, it's going to be too expensive, in which case it's, it, it's kind of too expensive. Um, as you say, you have to weigh up all the... Um, the costs and the benefits um, of it. Although I would say, you know, if you generally got a, a peaceful society doesn't invade anybody else and they're trading with each other, I mean, people will want to sell it to you um, if you want to buy it. Um, so I don't see such a society particularly being embargoed that much. Unless, of course, there's sort of like a, a coalition of large states who dislike it because they're taking trade away from them or something. That is, of course, a possibility. Um, but yeah, I well, you, you can't look at things in isolation. You have to look at it as a whole. What what benefits do you get? What costs do you get? Not just focus on a single cost that uh, one system has, and then try to make it out that this is somehow decisive. That'd be my response. So I started off with you know the question was do the Amish need um, Wilson, Bill Crystal to defend them? Um, I also conclude the end caps. I say that they're sort of the end caps are in some ways. Semi, in some cases, the end caps following the NAP are somewhat pacifist. Whether there are pacifists probably depends on what your case of aggression is, of course. And you go down into the sort of Carsian, Marxist, Chomskyite rabbit holes of the question what is and isn't aggression, of course. Now, the Amish are interesting, as I say, because they, they are sort of very principled, thick pacifists. They're not just sort of passive aggressively, you know, trying to get the liberal state to do what you want to do which is what a lot of protesters do, like these sort of atrocious die-in mask pro vaccine protests. So you just had, they're just laying on the ground in front of the campus because they want everyone to take the vaccine, wear a mask. That, that only makes sense. That's only pacifist um, since there's a giant police force and U.S. military to do, to, to do what you want to do. So that's, that's not really pacifism, um, air quote there. Um, so, so, and as far as the work things, I must work hard. So you can't you can't call them free riders in that regard. Um, the sort of modal libertarian type 
Rothbard's, I think it's called, uh, would, wouldn't apply to them. But you know, do they need them? It's not, it's, I would say overall, it, it's, it, it's possibly, it's possibly, but I think things will be different here. In the United States, something like 40% of taxes, 40% of people's time, you know, you have tax freedom day somewhere around April or March. Again, for people like, uh, uh, I think it was Joe Biden who said he gets a religious experience paying taxes. Although I'm not really sure how many taxes he actually pays and what he actually gets in. Um, uh, uh, or was that Sam Cedar who said that? Um, but um, the thing about even groups like the Amish who are pacifists, they pay huge amounts of money into the state, something like 40% of their, and since they work a lot, they pay a lot more in. Um, and if you're a labor theorist, valis and labor is the sort of, well, it's social necessary labor. Now, again, some of the Amish use horses and you argue they're not using the best labor saving devices, but the Mennonites clearly are. So they're, they're, they're paying in in that regard a lot. You know, to beat that 40% number, um, the foreign invader has to be pretty brutal to beat that 40% number um, or whatever the number is. And since they don't get any benefits, they don't, they're not, they're not, they don't even use welfare. They don't use social security. They don't use the public schools. Um, um, they don't use any of the state services really, except the sort of general nuclear deterrence maybe. They seem to be, they seem to be good. Now, would the Ancapistan, uh, now the Ancapistan cares wouldn't be pacifists. They, they, again, if they follow the NAP, they wouldn't do invasions abroad either from their own society. Maybe Ayn Rand society would for ideological reasons, but not for economic reasons explicitly. Um, um, so, Swithy, what do you make of overall that summary? Do you think it would, do you think, you know, this goes back to domestic versus foreign, um, you know, maybe, maybe they needed to defend them. But it seems like the bigger threat currently is um, is Bill Crystal and Woodrow Wilson himself through various soft and increasingly not so soft um, 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 aggression. Swithin? Well, I mean, who was it that put America under lockdown? Was it the American state governments or was it the Afghans? I think that answers the question. Um, when it comes to um, the Amish free ride and the protecting, I think they do to some extent. Uh, I, although I suppose that presupposes that pacifism doesn't work, uh, which I don't think it does. Um, and I think insofar as you think the def uh, defense is required of a certain description, then yes, they're going to be, they do need Woodrow Wilson in a sense, but they don't really need Woodrow Wilson. They just kind of need some guns to stop people invading them. Uh, now, do, does defense require offense just to sort of protect a particular region? Well, it, it, I suppose there could be optimal regions, but then this is going down into a whole sort of, um, sort of could, could like a purely defensive force, even a state defensive force defend itself, um, which I think is, um, is possible. I mean, I think Switzerland during the Second World War raised the cost of the Nazis invading them, and they've basically got a volunteer militia. They got some professionalized troops, I think, back then, but it wasn't huge, and they successfully prevented them from bothering invading them. So, and that's the Nazis, and they're you know pretty decent soldiers, with decent amount of money behind them, some reasonably good weaponry, at least for the time. So, um, 
the major the major threat is domestic, uh, but I do think there's the Amish do free ride to some extent. Um, any final thoughts, Tim? Well, my final thought is probably the best argument for pacifism is that whatever form of them, their Christianity is actually true, and that you should just sort of martyr yourself. If enough people martyr themselves, they'll just sort of back away. That would be my that would be the best argument in favor of pacifism. But that depends on whether Christianity or their version of Christianity is true or isn't true. Uh, my, my, my final thought would be um, with respect to um, just a quick empirical point, uh, which was brought up. Scott Horton said this after the fact. Uh, he, he said he sort of bluffed on it. He sort of just went over him. He said that, you know, and he sort of somewhat said it, but he could have said it into more detail. He said, if you take sort of look at the communists, um, this, which is regime number two, enemy number two of the United States, so Germany, communists, the Nazis, and followed by the communists. First of all, as, we, as various historians point out, the U.S. sort of put the communists on the map, and they sort of built them in, in a way. They sort of built, they sort of financed the regime. They sort of, you know, they could have made a deal with the white army to end World War One. Um, they could have made a deal with the white army to end World War One. Actually, it was World War One, as Scott Horton, that most mainstream historians would point out, that sort of created all these bad men that the neocons and neolibs, neolibs too, because again, they hate Hitler as much as the, um, um, uh, they hate as the conservative, well, they hate them more in certain ways. So at a quick empirical point, you know, if you just look at the actual invasions, have they actually made the world safer? Mm, it's not clear that the Kaiser was worse, is, is that bad? Um, um, uh, so the actual invasions done by Wilson and Crystal and advocated by them, and like Christians in Syria and Iraq are basically, uh, no, I know for Syria they've sort of been genocided to some some extent. Um, um, so so you know maybe 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 we need to protect the world from them. Um, um, so so those would be my final parts. Any any things to add? I think you'd agree with the empirical point. That's a sort of elementary point. Most libertarians know that point. Many, many people in the far left know that point too. Swithin, any final comments on that? No, I, I think that's a very fair summation. Now, I'd just like to thank uh, everyone for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your friends and family. Uh, the, and please subscribe to us on Podbean on YouTube. The more subscribers we get, um, the higher we get in the search rankings. And if you'd like to contact the show for any reason, uh, which we have had our first um, contact, and if, you, if you'd like to contact us, please contact us. We will respond. Uh, please contact us at uh, mindcrimelibertyshow at gmail.com. That's mindcrimelibertyshow at gmail.com. That's mindcrimelibertyshow at gmail.com. Mind